we're recording things, which is the way that I intro most Slope Angle podcasts that I do by myself. So uh, I am uh, I'm sitting in my palatial studio, my wife's 03 Honda Civic. And I have Ross Bentley on the line, so I'm—he's probably in a cooler place than I am. So, I am uh, not in an O3 Honda. No, you're—you're you're probably in like a house or like an office or something real. <laughs> but, uh, office, I think, is a well. No, it is, it's my office. I, you know, I call it my world domination headquarters. Yeah, well, what is essentially? You seem, to, you seem to be having a good few years. Maybe it's that's a, that's a good title. Yeah, but it's a you know it's a bedroom in the house, so. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that sounds less uh, less cool than office, but uh, yeah. How's yeah. Uh, how you haven't been on the, you haven't been on Slip Angle in like a year and a half? Um, how's things for for Ross Bentley? How's things in Speed Secrets Land and everything you're doing? Well, despite not being on the show for a year and a half, uh, <laughs> other than that, it's been crazy uh, in terms of busy. Uh, yeah. This past seems like it. This yeah. past year, I mean, I traveled. Well, actually. Interestingly, I traveled, I had fewer trips this past year, but okay. 11 of them were to Europe and, you know, they're just long time sitting in airplanes and, yeah, you know, rather than a, often my trips were, you know, are, are you know, let's get on a plane on a Thursday, fly across the country, go to whatever, Watkins Glen or VIR or down to Coda or whatever, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, fly home Sunday night or Monday morning. Well, the Europe yeah. trips were get on a plane on Monday morning, uh, land on Tuesday, be there Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then on a Sunday, get back on a plane and come home again. So that's a, they that's just, a long trip. Yeah. 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 But uh, nobody's going to feel sorry for me when I start saying that, you know, I went to Monza, Paul Ricard, Lamar, uh, Spa. Yeah, no, no, nobody ever feels bad for for somebody that in the race car world, at least that that had to like just waste a week getting paid to be at Spa. <laughs> it, it's funny, you know. I like I try to put my little uh, you know quivering, you know, poor poor me voice on. Nobody nobody bothers yeah. with that. They just you know kind of look at me and go, <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> "Sounds cooler than uh, what I did this week, right?" You know, yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, that that's uh, it, it's a it, that's that, that that schedule though. Like, how many weeks uh, a year do you think you're gone? Out of fifty-two weeks, are you gone fifteen, twenty weeks, or more than that? This past year, oh yeah, probably it was probably like that. Um, okay, the Which is year, a lot. Yeah, I mean, what was it? I think three years ago, I counted two hundred and forty-three nights in a hotel room. Oh my gosh, dude. And that was just way, way, way too much. So this past year That's was probably, lot. I'm thinking it was somewhere between 130 and 140 uh, nights yeah, in the hotel room. Yeah, still a lot, so, though. Yeah, that's so. still a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I was probably away from home with uh, with Grid Life and with other things that I was doing, SCCA stuff. Uh, it, it was probably, and then, you know, the SEMA show and the PRI show and all that stuff. I was probably away from home for like 40 nights. And that was like, I mean, we're like, we're, we're pedal to the metal. Like let's, let's maybe, maybe try to do this again uh, and not get divorced, you know? Yes. <laughs> so you, you must have a pretty understanding family and, uh, uh, yes. I mean, yeah. You, you got to work, but that's a, t- it's a tough line of work when you're gone a lot. It's, uh, you've well, been doing it for a long time too. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, I will admit that, uh, the travel part of it, it, it wears me down. I, you know, yeah. the, 
you know, crunched up in a little economy seat. Um, that's it's not as much fun as it used to be, and and you know, people go, oh, it's fantastic though. You get to see all these wonderful places, and you know, there was uh, there was. I think two or three, three of the trips to Europe kind of worked in a day or two. And, yeah. but most of the time it's, you know, I know where the airport is. I know where the racetrack is and I know where the hotel is. And, yeah. you know, if you, you know, and those if you, are the places you go. And yeah. You drive the, like the Renault rental car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the, uh, definitely a highlight this past year though was, um, so Colin Brown, who I started coaching when he was 12 years old he was yeah. co-driving with the gentleman driver that I was coaching. So, you know, I've known Colin, well, since he was a little kid and yeah, coached and, and him. he's been a great guest on your show, too. I, I love the, the shows you guys do together. Oh, it's been so much fun hanging out with him. He is just a – well, he is – he's one of those just wonderful people that are uh, just full of energy all the time. You know, I, I, I sometimes yeah. joke, you know, he's like a – He's like a big lab dog, you know. What I mean, just like oh, let's go, let's go play, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> like he's just always up for doing something. And Everything's cool, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, that's a great kind of person to be with when you're no, traveling that, in Europe. Yeah, especially when you're, uh, especially when you're traveling as much as you are, you wouldn't want to be with somebody that's like, oh my gosh, can you believe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the, I, I got to say, the highlight of the year was uh, we're driving from. From Red Bull Ring back to Vienna uh, after the race on Saturday night, and mm. Colin has a bag of those Haribo, uh, those little oh the gummy bears, gummy bears, colorful oh, gummy bears. Oh, so good. They're, that's that's my favorite gummy bear. I love those gummy bears. Well, at one point he takes one of them and kind of sets it up on the dash, like it's kind of sitting up on the dash. And of course we're driving along, and it's it's you know. So then he goes. So we can get two of them to stand up here, and then it's three, and then it's four. Well, eventually we've got a dozen of these things lined up on the dash, and of course now it's up to me to drive all the way to Vienna to the hotel in Vienna without knocking any of them over. And you got to be it, so smooth. It's it becomes a game, you know. And do you remember what kind of rental car it was? What kind of car was it? Uh, I'm trying to remember that we had so many different ones this year. I mean, I think Some it might have been forgettable diesel thing. Or? It was a for sure. It was a diesel. It, I think it might have been yeah. like a Ford. Fiesta or whatever that uh, little Fiesta is over there, yep. and uh, you know they're all standing. And I'm now I'm you know we check in at the hotel, we come around. I got to go to the underground parking. I'm going down the ramp, trying to drive so smoothly, and like a couple of them falling over. We get up the next morning, <laughs> we drive to the airport, we leave the rental car, and there's still like four of them standing there on the dash. So. They had probably melted to the thing were glued permanently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you, you know. Got, you got little gummy bear butts all on the, uh, you know, when they clean them off, they have to scrub the gummy bear butts off the dash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for yeah. that. Well, not too bad for the rental car person, but, uh, you know, small it, things. It probably delicious. Some small minds, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, that's probably more like a tip, you know, when you're in the rental car business. It's it's a it's a treat, a snack. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it. Uh, how many years have you been traveling with this kind of schedule? Is it uh, has it been pretty much like f since this was your job? Or uh, yeah, I mean, I guess. Well, the last time that I had a, I've I've only really had one job in my life, and I quit mm -hmm. that in 1986. What was that job? Uh, I was actually worked 
um, for the power company in British Columbia, BC Hydro. I worked in a research lab as a fuels and lubricants technician. I would test fuel and oil that was coming in from the diesel generating plants and the turbine generating plants. Okay. And yeah. that was my glamorous. real job. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was real glamorous. Yeah. Uh, that, that actually sounds kind of cool. Well, actually, if you're going to have a job, it was pretty darn good because we I, I had access to a fantastic machine shop that I could go make race car parts in. And oh, yeah, man. That's a huge perk. That was like what I went to college for was there was this cool racer guy that ran the machine shop in college. And uh, he welded me individual throttle body stacks. He welded me all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I, I love that guy. <laughs> so I think so. The the advice here is if you're going to get a job, get one that's got a machine shop attached yeah, to it get somewhere. One with yeah, yeah, free machine shop access, especially if the guy running the machine shop is building a hot rod. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There <laughs> you go. Because <laughs> you know he's cool then. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. This guy was building an old Jaguar. This is probably going on 15, 16 years ago. Uh, he was building the Jaguar with a Chevy. I think it was a Jaguar. Like, It's probably worth crazy money now, but it was like a D-type or E-type. Whatever one that is less valuable. but like Probably the E, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he, had, he had one with a Chevy 327 motor out of, uh, out of an old 67 Camaro, and he, had, he, was, he was putting Hillborn... Uh, mechanical fuel injection stacks on the thing, and I th I thought it was the coolest car on the hist you know in the history of the world. Um, and he was one of the guys that got me to go to a road course for really? the, for the first time. Yeah, he he was friends with another guy, another kid um, at, in my age, um, and he had a son who was our age too. So he was kind of like you know he knew some of the people in our class who were into cars. Um, and his, uh, this other kid, uh, and I became friends and this other kid had done a few track events and he was in the Volkswagen, like not, not an official thing, but it was like the Volkswagen club. And they had a bunch of like a two Volk, you know, second generation Volkswagen Jettas and stuff or third generation or whatever. And, um, and so I, that's how, that's how I, he was like, yeah, they're, they're rent, they're going to this track down in South Haven. It's only 45 minutes South. It's Ginger and Raceway. You should go check it out. And I had just started becoming friends with the people who I now, you know, do grid life stuff with, um, Chris and some of our other buddies. Uh, and Chris and I were like the founders of grid life. And that, and like one of the reasons that I knew about a racetrack was because of this, this dude in the uh, machine shop, you know, who, uh, who was just a car guy and he knew about racetracks and he thought going fast around corners was cool. So you never know where you're going to, where you're going to find the inspiration for life, you know, like the things that'll make or break your life someday might be just wandering into the machine shop because you need something welded. <laughs> you know, I think it'd be fascinating to, to go in, just interview people that are at tracks and say, what was the one thing that got you here? You know, like yeah, what was that big, what, what thing? got you there? Yeah. yeah. It would be what, really uh, interesting. Yeah. You you probably like three years ago. You probably said it on the show, but I can't remember what was the first thing that got you to a racetrack. Well, my father took me to a track when I was five years old. We went to the you know short oval track in Vancouver in Canada. And was it dirt or paved? It was a paved one. The first the first track we went to was paved, and. Okay. I can remember sitting there as when I was five and just going, that's it. This is what I'm going to do, right? And yeah, you know, yeah. when you're five, you're going to be a fireman or an astronaut or something, right? I was going to be a race driver. And yeah. the thing that uh, to this day, I can still remember this yellow car, the throttle stuck on it, and it went boom, hit the wall the um, in turn one, 
basically drilled a hole in the wall, went over the wall and landed on the outside. And I remember like as a little five-year-old, you're the, that sticks with you, right? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. what was interesting was uh, a few years later, that same driver ended up approaching my dad who had a shop and asked him to help prepare his cars. And okay. they became good friends. And through the years, my dad and him traveled and did all these races in the in the Pacific Northwest together, oval yeah. track stuff. And when I was, what was I, 18, I guess, I'd gone down to the Jim Russell Racing School at Willow Springs, was yeah. going to start road racing. I came home, and this that exact same person that I watched crash at five years old, he was racing a super modified sprint car. Okay. And cool. He got sick. His kidneys started to fail. And so he says, I can't race anymore. There's my car. You go and race it. So the very first race I ever did was in this guy's super modified, uh, the guy that I watched crash when I was five years old. (laughs) (laughs) So the first memorable race car driver when you were five, he was the guy who gave you your first ride? Yes. That's awesome. (laughs) What are the odds of that, right? (laughs) Yeah, what a cool guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did 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 he know that you that you had seen him when you were 5 and that was like your first memorable experience? Yeah, I think so, but you know, I don't yeah. think it because I mean, I I basically I I lived at the track. I was a track rat just growing up and you know, my my whole thing was, you know, in, in I don't know if it's still like this or not, but like in that in that world in short track oval track racing at the time, kids, you know, if you're under 16, you couldn't get into the pits. So I would sit in the stands all night long, watch the racing. And then when the races were over, when everybody could go across the track and into the pits, then I'd go down and see my right. dad and, and Glenn and, and, uh, uh, and some of the other drivers that my dad worked with and stuff. And, you know, so I kind of grew up with that and they all knew me, yeah. all the drivers knew me as my dad's kid, right. Who was always right. around. And, you know, if it was, I would do anything to polish a car, clean a wheel, do anything. So. You just wanted to be there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember the feeling of going to my first circle track uh, event, and and my dad knew one of the I was probably eight. Uh, my dad knew a guy who was kind of sponsoring. It was a, I think they called it a late model or something. It, you know, it was all slab-sided, tube frame thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not really even up on circle track stuff. Uh, we've only done a few shows with them. It's some, there's some of the like the best shows, but uh, circle track guys are super interesting. But yeah, I remember it so distinctly. It was the Chicago disposal car, and it was my dad's friend's like small garbage company. And I thought it was just the coolest man. The noises and the smells and the elephant ears and the the people screaming swear words off the you know from the uh, the stands when their friend crashed and like i remember it so distinctly when you say and, elephant ears are you talking about the spectators uh well <laughs> they might have had large ears but they had those you know the fried the fried yeah. things that i don't know if they call them elephant ears in canada yeah, yeah. or you know I don't, or yeah. the pacific northwest but it's uh, it's a bunch of fried dough with powdered sugar that's probably oh, the yeah. cause of many people's deaths you know yeah <laughs> yeah delicious death but the cause of death yeah well i I remember it so distinctly and it's i don't know i think it's one of the things that one of the things that uh appeals to me about um oval track racing is i think it's it is the smell you know you go to a road course and you know i don't care where you're at they're big right they're things are are spread out spread out when you go to like a small you know a three-eighths mile or half mile or even quarter mile oval track Everything's just 
all confined and you know the smell yeah, you of the could throw you could throw a football to the back side of the track yeah <laughs> well maybe you could right yeah. there <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, i couldn't it, but like a, a really a really strong person yeah yeah <laughs> you know what i mean but like somebody that's right there it's it's all right there it's a bull ring you know and so that smell stays there and the sound stays yeah. there and i think for sure if you're a five-year-old that's what that's what I remember the most is the the smell and the sound. It was just it. Yeah, I, it's captivating, I, man. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's you know all these years later, and it still does it to me. Yeah. What What was the first time that you went to um, to a road course? When When did you see one of those for the first time? Uh, probably I was probably ten. So okay. in Vancouver, the the local racetrack was Westwood, one of the greatest road racing circuits ever until it got turned into a housing development in 1991. Um, Those houses are probably all garbage, too. Yeah. houses are terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for me, like the, the ultimate weekend for me was we would race um, – we would race at the Oval Track on Friday night, maybe Saturday night. And on Sunday, I would get my dad to take me to Westwood so we could watch the road races. And yeah. that would be like, you know, so I would, you know, Friday night, usually Friday night would be in the shop working in the car, getting it ready. Saturday morning would be back in the shop getting the car ready. And then Saturday afternoon, we'd take it to the oval track. We'd race Saturday night. You know, you get home at 2 o'clock in the morning. And if I was lucky, it's... 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, I'd say, Dad, let's go up to Westwood. And he would take me there, and you know, we'd wander around all day, and I'd go and climb up a tree and watch the racing. And, um, you know, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little excited just thinking about all this stuff. But Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that, you know, one of the other big aha things that happened to me was when I was around 10-ish, I'm going to, somewhere around 10 years old, my friend's older brother, I think he must have been 16 or something at the time, yep. he yep. gave me a stack of road and track magazines. And oh, yeah. they were like, I'm going to say early to mid-60s. And there were all these stories in them about you know, the Lotus Formula One cars and Jimmy Clark and the Ford GT40s going to Le Mans and all this stuff. And I'd be reading these things. So, And of course, it all had all the stuff about Indy 500 as well, which was kind of the the oval track world that was around. Yeah. And for listeners who haven't listened to the old shows or don't know who Ross is, <laughs> Ross uh, was an IndyCar driver for a while. So, <laughs> so yeah, that was, you know, I read all this stuff and go, that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to race Indy 500. Yeah. And, and yeah. so there was a, you know, I was sort of, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to say torn because I loved both, but there was, you know, I was in this oval track world and then following road racing and right. you know, I can remember being in my in a, in uh, the back seat of my parents' car. We were at a drive-in, and on the radio, the news came on that Jimmy Clark had been killed. Oh, jeez! And I could, that was the first time that I probably I mean I felt tears coming to my eyes. It was like, why did I feel that way about a guy that I just read about? And yeah. Yeah. and so there was a I don't know why, but it you know road racing fascinated me too. So yeah. Uh, it was, you know, there was no doubt that I was just, I was going to go racing. It was just where and what. Yeah. You, you were drawn so deeply to it. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the, yeah. And it's, it seems like the, you know, working your way towards IndyCar, like that's one of the only things that, that's one of the only like major series that 
uh, IndyCar and NASCAR kind of translate between the road course and the oval course, you know, oval track. Um, so it's kind of a draw for for both sides of the hobby, if you want to call them, you know, sides of the hobby. But uh, um, did you did you follow uh, indie stuff uh, when you were younger or no? Yeah, I mean, there was a time that. Uh, you know, I could sit there and go, okay, Ray Hurun, Ray Hurun won the race in 1911, 1912 with so and so. Oh, you knew list, everybody. I could yeah. list every Indy 500 winner from 1911 to whenever, right? And right. Uh, so I knew, and and there were some guys that were racing in the Pacific Northwest who had gone and run it at Indy, right. and I was going. I was sort of around that in my first race. I actually raced against Tom Sneva's brother. So Tom Sneva, who won Indy twice, I was right. from Spokane. Yep. Uh, we kind of, there was this circuit in the Northwest that we ran on. And so we hung out with the Snevas all the time. And so when I drove my very first super modified race, I was starting and right next to me was, was uh, Jan Sneva. Uh, Tom's brother, who did go and race at Indy at one time as well, so um, okay. so it was you know it was around that world and uh, yeah. yeah and you know and then I'm reading about Formula One and wanting to go to Le Mans and Grand Prix and stuff like that too. So yeah, <laughs> but Indy yeah, seems big. slightly 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 more achievable than going to Europe. Well, it's the same continent at least. Yeah, you, know, you can dr- you could drive there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's it, it's a it, it it's a tough uh, it's a tough place to get to now. Um, but I remember as a kid, I remember being fascinated by the. Oop, I just hit the lock button on my wife's car. It's probably a control where my arms flail. But well, that's good. Nobody's going to get in and bother you now. No, nope, nobody's going to bother <laughs> me here. I'll, I'll shut the door all the way so that the lights don't stay on. It's a it's a palatial studio, as I said. Nice. Um, the uh, as a kid, I remember reading the. Um, I don't know if you ever read it. The Andy Granatelli book. Uh, they call me Mister Five Hundred. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, I I read that. I've, I've probably read it a dozen times. Um, but I I was so fascinated by the the early era when like if you built a car and you like towed it there with your mom's station wagon like you had a shot like yeah. you could actually like potentially get in in the grid at the Indy 500 um it uh it was a different time i mean we're talking like you know borderline 80 years ago now but a uh, different time um even yeah. through the 60s you know team there were you know, teams yeah, that, they were that, that would, yeah. yeah, they would build, you know, it wasn't until, what was that? I guess that would have been, you know, really the late seventies where the, you know, it was sort of the British manufacturers, Lola, uh, yeah. March, um, you know, those were the two main ones that sort of became dominant, you know, yeah. dominant to the point where if you didn't have that or a Penske chassis, then you weren't going to be yeah. competitive. Yeah, you had to have the big dollar car, and the and that came with uh, a lot of sponsorship, and it 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 just like anything, it progresses into a level of professionalism, or it or it stops, you know. Yeah. Um. But uh, what uh, in like all the years of 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 your racing, um, uh, you, you've raced with former indie racers, you've raced with uh, you know you raced Rolex Twenty Four, uh, all kinds of like the high the high profile events um but like you know guys used to be able to bring their their home-built cars to the indy 500 and they probably weren't that good but uh what was like the best 
Finnish story that you ever saw of like somebody in a home built or like kind of a junk car or a car that was known terrible. Oh. Do you have anything that comes to mind? <laughs> uh, when you think, I remember you, you, you told the story about a car at the at the Rolex Twenty Four that like wasn't right because of the wing size. Um, well, that you told that last time, but yeah, that certainly comes to mind of a, as a car that was evil trying to kill us, and yeah, literally yeah, we, trying to kill you. <laughs> yeah, and, and we won with it, so that was a pretty cool uh, thing. You know, I, I spent yeah, that that is a that's a pretty hard to beat story. You did win the Rolex Twenty Four <laughs> with a car that was terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what, uh, for for listeners that didn't hear that one, what what car was that? Uh, well, uh, yeah, so quick. It was a it was a Lola chassis with a Nissan motor, um, and between the season, well, in the off season, um, I'm trying to think. I guess it was Grand. It was Grand Am. I guess at that point, I'm trying to think of the. You know, we went through all those different series, and you know, Grand yeah. Am, IMSA, IMSA, Grand Am, USRC. I think it was Grand Am, and they changed the aero rules where everybody had to have a spec rear wing. And okay. yeah, that's right. so when we put this spec rear wing on this Lola, uh, well, one of the Lola engineers, aerodynamicists, basically sent us a message and said, "said Do not drive this car." It's unstable. It'd be like driving an arrow backwards, you know. It, it just... It's not the right stuff. No, no. And it just, it would move around on the on the straightaway, on the banking. It was just, you had to be hanging on for dear life all the time. And Was it inducing lift? Was it like lifting the back of the car? Or? Yeah. Um, but what was weird was it was unpredictable because oh, okay. it would change if other cars were around you. Oh, geez. And I had that experience one other time in an Indy car as well. Um, but this this car would just, it would start to, it would, if a car was anywhere near you, it would just like move up the banking four car widths. And you, holy, you know, holy you, crap. You're kind of just like, okay, here we go. And, you, you know, if, yeah. and one of the guys on one of the test days tried to hold it and stop it from doing right. that and ended up spinning it and stuffing it into the wall. So you kind of learn pretty quickly, well, don't do that. You kind of got to let it go, but you kind of got to encourage it to come back. What, what uh, year was this when you were That was 2003. Yeah, I thought it was pretty recent. Yeah, well, That would have been Grand Am days, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. For anybody that wants to Google image the car, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, but it was, so, so, it was yeah, one so of those. What did you end up doing with the car? Yeah. Well, you learn, you adapt, you figure out how to go fast without that, and you're knowing that that's going to be the case. And um, yeah. you just plan for like walking four car length up the banking. <laughs> yeah, you know, just, and you'd kind of look in your mirrors, and or when you you knew yeah. okay, car was around, you knew that the car was going to move there, and you know sometimes <laughs> it would be a little bit of even of you know okay, I'm going to give up half a second on this lap by breathing the throttle off, now yeah. so that I don't catch that car in the worst place. Yeah, and that makes sense. That makes sense. So you just had to be on top of it in terms of thinking all the time and uh you know the car was it was it was fast enough fast enough to be to put pressure on the other teams and right. we basically made them make mistakes and we had yeah. one of those rare races where uh, other than a mechanical issue that we kind of worked through, uh, we didn't. We ba almost had a perfect race, um, right, right. and you know that doesn't happen very often. But uh, in a, in a, especially in a car that that walks itself up at the banking and wants to crash, <laughs> that's 
And it's hard to have a perfect race. <laughs> maybe that contributed to it. Maybe that yeah. kept us on our toes yeah. that much more. I That's don't know. True. If the car, yeah, if the car does want to kill you, you don't want to die. <laughs> so maybe, yeah, maybe that makes you drive differently. Um, that that uh, uh, unless you have another story, I have another. I have kind of a tangent we can go to off of that. Do you have another story of a terrible car? Well, the only uh, uh, one time, so in ninety, I guess it would have been ninety three. Okay, I think it was ninety three. I was racing an Indy car, and. I was in a two-year-old chassis, a 91 chassis. And that, you know, at that time in IndyCar racing, every team with any kind of a budget, which was everybody other than us, would have a new chassis every single year. And Full development changes, everything was different. Yeah. And, but I didn't have the budget, so I was running a two-year-old chassis, a 91 Lola. And again, it was one of those between seasons, the series makes changes to the rules. And in the tunnels underneath the car, they had those their little fins or streaks underneath the, the tunnels that keeps yeah. the air attached to the tunnel. Well, they they basically banned that in between the 92 and 93 season. Okay. And so the 93 cars were designed in a wind tunnel without them. So the designers make the car work without them. Well, Lots our of changes probably, yeah. Yeah. Our car was designed Every, to have them. Yeah. And then you remove them. And again, it was one of those, if a, if I was by myself on the track, it was okay. Uh, but if a car got close to me, the air coming off the car would be disturbed in a way that would make the car snap loose. And oh, so driving an Indy car at the Nazareth Oval, a one-mile oval that you know we would average, I think we were averaging 180, 190 miles an hour on a one-mile oval <laughs> where you lap the track in 19 seconds. And, yeah. and the thing, and any single time, and you're out there and we, uh, there'd be 28 cars starting the race. So yeah. on a one mile oval, 28 cars, you're in traffic all the time. All the time. So Always. you're just, you know, I'm driving the entire race, kind of watching my mirrors going, where are there cars around me? If I've got a little bit of a gap, I can trust the back end of the car. If not, this thing's just going to snap. And Oh my gosh, that stresses me out so much. <laughs> when an Indy car snaps on an oval and it snaps yeah. to loose and you try to correct it, it snaps back and then you drill it into the wall. Yeah. yeah. And it's then not you... like formula drift. You don't yeah. look cool at all. <laughs> no, no. Uh, <laughs> and then you spend time at a hospital, which fortunately... I got through that weekend without doing without spending time in a hospital, but mm -hmm. for sure the most terrifying thing I've ever done in a car, and to the point where yeah. at the end of the weekend you're going, I don't want to do that again. Like I just, you know, driving race cars are fun. It's all I've ever wanted to do until now. Yeah, I fun. don't want to do that. That's not fun. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, that yeah. wouldn't be very fun. It yeah. Sound fun at all? Yeah. Uh, what was the tangent I wanted to go to? We were talking about. Oh. um, you had said something about like, uh, or we had we had mentioned the that maybe the terrible car made you drive better. Um, we we did have uh, we did have an incident, you know, some incidents at uh, our our Road Atlanta event last year, which happens at every Road Atlanta event that's ever happened. Um, and it seemed to me like everybody had track insurance that crashed. Um, Interesting. Do you? Do you think literally like I filled out a bunch of incident reports? Like it seemed like everybody that hit the wall had insurance. Uh, do you think that um, 
not having consequences would make you drive worse or having, you know, not, I mean, consequences, you could always get hurt, but uh, the financial consequences at an amateur level. Um, have you seen drivers that like, you know, that, that money doesn't matter maybe? Uh, do you see them drive more recklessly or, you know, is that something that you've noticed over the past 20 some years or? Well, I think you can look at Formula One as an example. You know, the Formula One circuits have gotten to the point where there are little to no consequences to going off, and the yeah. cars have become so safe that drivers bang into one another way more often than they used to. Okay. So I think consequences, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, so I I can't help but think that that applies and happens at all levels. And yeah, it trickles down, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and to make matters worse, uh, there's a when Formula One drivers start setting the standards, the driving standards, and people watch what they do. Then you see drivers in junior formulas do that, and then you see them doing it, doing it in, let's say, club racing, and then you see them doing it in track day events because, well, that's just you know, that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah, Robin's racing, do it for Dale. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's a um yeah. So there's a trickle down effect from the top levels, not having the consequences that there used to be. The insurance thing I think is interesting. I you know, I don't know I'm pretty sure if you asked any one of them, for sure at a logical at a logical conscious level, they would have said, never even thought of that. Yeah, yeah. But you wonder if way back there. It stuck with me. Yeah, it stuck with me. Like, uh, you know, because this is kind of the insurance for like time trial events. It's relatively new. You know, like it's, I, I, this is the first year that I, last year was the first year that I even saw it uh, as a thing that people bought. And it seemed like people bought it kind of in force. Like there was a, there was a bunch of them and it seemed like a lot of them crashed. (laughs) That just, like to me, I just connected the dots. Um, and like yeah. I, maybe even talking about, and I've talked about it a couple of times, but not really at length, but maybe even just talking about it. Uh, a lot of our drivers listen, but you know, listen to the, sh- the podcast, maybe even just talking about it uh, a little bit, uh, might bring some awareness to that. But like, I mean, I don't like to see recklessness and I don't, I don't think anybody at Atlanta want to call anybody Atlanta reckless, but like. I don't want to see that become like a trend, you know, like, you know, I I got the insurance. It'll only cost me a thousand bucks to stuff it. I'm going to see if I can win, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm just kind of curious if, if over the years, if you've seen super well-funded drivers that wasn't, that it wasn't a problem or, you know, if, if you'd noticed any kind of pattern uh, with regards to funding or lack of, you know, lack of, uh, uh, blowback if they wreck the car if that if that is kind of a marker for if they're going to wreck the car <laughs> so. uh, i i think for sure is the best answer <laughs> <laughs> for sure okay well then it's not just me it's not even at the 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 sub club level that it's a thing <laughs> well and i think that happens at uh, almost every level you know that's probably whether it's, true whether it's yeah. uh you know, HPDE, track day, events, time trials, club racing, you know, to the very top levels of, of the sport. And I think, you know, I I don't want to be the, you know, the old fuddy-duddy that said, you know, back in the day, you know, that kind of thing. But um, 
You've earned the right to to say back in the day of once in a while. <laughs> well, you've, you know, there's a reason not to why... say that Ross is old or anything, but he's yeah, seen some days. But I'm old. He's, he's seen uh, no. Well, you've you've just seen so much. You're on the road. 200 days a year so back in the day could be last week (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it feels like it uh right uh, right. you know i think i haven't crashed a lot in my career why because i could never afford it you know i i spent one season in a team driving for a factory where there was i'm not going to say it was unlimited budget but it was a big one and you know practically every other season ever drove i drove for teams that had a budget that had to be yeah, you know, and you had to the, pay attention the budget, to. The budget was probably pretty strict, huh? Yeah, yeah, and you know, especially when it was my budget, that my budget came from whatever sponsorship dollars I could scrape up. And then, if you're right off the car, you don't get to race anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were there were IndyCar weekends where you know I knew that if if I took a corner off the car, I couldn't get to the next race. And yeah. not only did that hurt me, but I signed a contract with sponsors that I would be at the next race. So technically, they could come back and sue me and ask for money back. So right. not right. only would it would I not get the money, I would have to pay back the money. So yeah. you can't yeah. help but drive differently. And I'm not saying it's it's all good because I see some drivers who drive with their wallet too much. Yeah. Um if they're trying to get to the very very top that's not a good place to be, yeah. 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 But uh, on the flip side, I think it's a – yeah, there are, there are some drivers that really should do that. <laughs> yeah. The wallet should steer once in a while. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah. Like, like everything. It's all about a balance, right? Did, did you ever run an indie car? My friends make fun of me because I'm always on a limited budget. Uh, my friends make fun of me that I run – you know, I'm running two-year-old cast-off tires and old brake fluid, you know. Um, my, uh, did you ever run an indie car and cast off tires? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like tires you didn't pay for or just really old tires you shouldn't have been on? Well, so I was driving for Dale Coyne racing and you would yeah, have local to me. Yeah. yeah. Right, up, right up, right up 57 yeah, yep. or 55, 55, 55. Julia? Yeah. Yep. And, uh, I, you know, what he did, what he accomplished through the years as a small low budget team to build to what he's done to the to the day to this day yeah. is fantastic. I'm so happy for him. But you know, there was when I was racing yeah, for like him true effort, like yeah. to just earn it. Earn yeah. every every finish and every start. Yeah. Exactly. And but, you know, I would be there were times when because at the time CART, you know, was a franchise system and Dale had two franchises. He had one driver with a sponsorship to run the whole season. And then he had various drivers coming up with money to drive some of the races, which I had a little bit. But every now and then, Dale would call me up. I remember the first time this happened. It was like on Wednesday prior to the Long Beach IndyCar race. And on Wednesday, Dale calls me and says, get down to Long Beach. I want you to drive the car this weekend. And what that really meant was he needed the car to do enough laps in practice so that we could qualify. And at that time, like 32, 33 cars would show up and only 28 would make the field. So some okay. cars wouldn't even make the field. So you had to be fast enough to qualify. So then you go and qualify and then you'd start the race. And there were races where we would race to 20th place. Like as soon as you got to 20th, that triggered a certain payout. Yeah. 
and so you maybe drive the truck home, huh? Yeah. So it yeah. it was worthwhile for Dale to to do that. And for me, it was I got a chance to drive an Indy car for nothing. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> sometimes you know I would me. you know I think Long Beach I got maybe fifteen twenty laps of practice. I go out and qualify, qualified twenty sixth or twenty seventh, start the race, drive until we're in like nineteenth, and there's a you know there's enough cars have dropped out or something's happened. We're guaranteed we got 19th and I get a radio call and I come into pits and the car would get retired with a mysterious gearbox problem. Oh yeah. Because it would keep, it would keep mileage down. But along the way to your question, I may have done practice and or qualifying on the tires that the other car had run before. Cast offs. Yeah. 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 So that, uh, it, Back then, what were what were tire compounds like? Were they pretty similar to today? Where you, you have you know x amount of you know, how much has tire technology changed since then? Like it's only been you know fifteen twenty years, but like have you noticed a big change in tire technology? Or uh, well, first of all, then unlike today in IndyCar racing, uh, you know where there's different compounds, then there was like. There was one slick and one rain tire, and that was yeah, it. Yeah, here's the tires. Yeah. 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 So you didn't play around with different compounds at all. Um, I'm, I'm going to say the biggest difference in tire technology uh, across the board in every form of racing is just the the uh, consistency and duration that you can get okay. out of a tire. Like it used to be that, you know, a tire had, you know, lap two, three, four was it. They dropped yeah. off a lot, and then you might get another X number of laps, 20 or 40 laps out of them, and then they would drop off, and basically at that point, you could barely drive on them. Nowadays, yeah. you can get a tire that, yeah, the first two, three, four laps are going to be the fastest, but they're going to drop off a little bit. A li- yeah, a little bit, yeah. And then they're going to stay really consistent for like 200 miles. Or yeah, until they, until they show metal. Yeah, and they might drop off another two tins, and then they'll be like that until yeah, sparks are flying out of them. So I think uh, it, is that the same like in higher levels of racing nowadays too, with with what you've seen like in LMP3 stuff and LMP, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, I mean the so Michel- much more consistent, huh? Yeah, the Michelins that we run on in Europe um, in the LMP3 cars, uh, man, they're just it's again they'll fall off a little bit, and when you put a new set of tires on, you'll go a little quicker. But the difference between a new set and a, you know, a set with 300 kilometers on them, 200 miles on them, is not that great. It's not that yeah. big a difference. And uh, like blow a t- blow a couple apexes and they run the same time. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think that's just simply the biggest difference. And I think um, I don't know if it's because we and I say we as drivers overall have gotten better at sensing what a tire can use. But there seems to be, you know, there are tires that work really good in a, you know, longitudinal braking acceleration. They work really well laterally, but they don't blend really well. And um, I I think that it seemed like the balance between that was actually better years ago. And now you can get some tires that are like, Boy, don't try to, you know, if you try to trail brake too much with them, the tire just gives oh, up. Oh, yeah. 
Or yeah. if you try to get on the throttle while you still have a lot of steering input in the thing, the tire just gives up. It's kind of like you just got to drive the car straighter more. And okay. it, maybe that's maybe that's because we all drivers have become more sensitive to that kind of stuff. And maybe we because we have data, data and, and everything else that's helping us find there. that, that we're just maybe more sensitive to it. Maybe it was always like that. I don't know. Yeah. Do, do you... Do you remember there being a lot of tires, you know, when you started out, like, like, do you remember there being tires that were uh, way different, even just, you know, same brand? Uh, or was the, were they pretty consistent? Were, like, all the BF Goodriches the same? Or was it, like, freak sets of tires? Like, um, has that sort of consistency changed at all or no? I, I, overall, I'd say the quality control consistency has gotten better every manufacturer. Yeah. I mean, it used to be that every now and then you'd get a set of tires or, you know, yeah. Like the fronts were just like, there is no grip in these tires and they're brand new. What's going on? You take them off, yeah. you, you know, you put another set on and all of a sudden it fixes it. And it's like, well, that was just a bad set of tires. You don't get that anymore. Um, yeah. My grandpa used to tell me stories of that. He he raced some circle track and he was like, ah, oh, I had this one really good set of generals or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, ran them all season. I won everything. Well, yeah. The lucky yeah, set of tires, yeah. Yeah, you, you you wonder if it was just made, you know, somebody dumped too much of something into the mix, you know. But. Yeah, and I guess just, you know, quality consistency, control. Consistency. Yeah, is, quality control. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, back in the day, well, when your grandfather raced and when I started racing, we raced on bias ply tires, you know. And yeah. so I was, you know, in the middle of my career, we kind of made the change in just about every class that we were involved with, you know, from bias ply to radial tires. And radial okay. tires are definitely more consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, the one downside is um, they don't like as big a slip angle. A bias ply tire, you could slide them sideways a lot more, which it was more fun, um, yeah. look look cooler. Uh, but a radial yeah. is faster and more consistent. The uh, uh, yeah the 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 I love watching like even at like an SCCA race. I love watching like the prod cars, the production cars that run on. Some were running on bias plies, some were running on, you know, uh, radials. But you, some of the old stuff, uh, they really hang those cars out. And maybe that's maybe some of that is, you know, the old bug-eye sprites and stuff. Um, maybe some of that is tires. I hadn't even thought about the, you know, what the tire likes to do and what it does well. But uh, fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, you kind of kind of wish that we had more of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Je Jeff Braun was on the show uh, last year, and, yeah. uh, and we asked him uh, what uh, – he's obviously Colin Braun's dad and friend of yours, and you guys have known each other a while. And he had, we asked him, like, what would he do to ch if he could just change something in racing? And he had sa he said get rid of arrow um, and just make the cars wild and make the drivers drive them. <clears throat> um do you agree with that, or is there something else you would change if you could just be, you know, the racing wizard and and grant grant one wish for that? Well, it's funny because Jeff and I talk about this a lot, but uh, for sure, yeah, I, mean, I kind of figured you would. <laughs> yeah, uh, was it last year? I think um, I asked him to write an article for my Speed Secrets Weekly, and I said, "You're the king of racing. What would the king of racing do?" And uh, I remember reading that article, thinking, "Man, I asked him that question like six months ago." Ross, you copycat. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know for sure i think uh, and i don't know if it's yeah. eliminate arrow completely or if it's just reduced it reduce it drastically uh yeah. i would do that i would up horsepower okay uh and 
do something to, uh, I'm not going to say, re- uh, yeah, reduce even tire grip a little bit. You know, like okay. if it meant slightly narrower tires, you know, the, uh, is there anybody in the world who doesn't like to see a car that slips and slides around a corner? No, we all love that. Well, how do we do yeah. that? More horsepower, less grip. It's fun to watch and it's fun to drive too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, there are all sorts of arguments about this, but generally uh, the less grip you have, the more it kind of shows the the best driver is going to shine through. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to watch. Uh, and it's fun to see the guy that really loves it, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it uh, watching uh, a buddy of ours, uh, he comes you know, he works with us at grid life a little bit and watching Tom Gorman run PWC races last year yeah. and the year before, uh, I think it was the year before he had, um, they were, you know, they found the limit of what they could do with crazy springs and like, like kind of kind of messed up the control the rear control arms on their TCA car and the car had crazy camber and it was like insane to watch him try to steer this car around I think it was Laguna Seca um and he did well with it like he he, he ended up you know podiuming and uh just fun to watch somebody just manhandle a car it's always fun to watch it does I don't think that's ever going to change but um what is well, uh what well so the one other thing that I, if i was the king of racing or whatever oh, yeah. the other hey, we can go on this for hours you can talk about this as much as you want well what i would do um and you could leave the cars leave them alone leave them alone the only thing i would do i would put sprinklers in every single racetrack in the world and okay. the tracks would be wet all the time so we'd always <laughs> run on rain tires Okay. And you think about it, the tire manufacturers, it would be good for them because they'd be developing tire tread design and everything. That would, I think that would apply to street tires even more. So I think it's good okay. from that. That's uh, true. Imagine, you know, you're at Road, Road America on that beautiful summer, August weekend. It's sunny and you're sitting there, you know, eating your brats and corn and a lot of cob. And but you're watching cars slip and sliding as if it's raining. Yeah, uh, yeah, that that that'd be fun to watch. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> the best racing is always the wet races. So make yeah, them always wet. Uh, they're they're really the only part that I hate about uh, wet racing is uh, there's two things. I hate sitting in the pits in the rain. Mm-hmm. So if it's sprinklers and it's a nice sunny day, like that part is done. Yeah. Um, and and the other part is I hate sitting in the car and having it fog up all the time. And if it's a sunny day, that part is fine too. <laughs> well, and if you knew that every single time you're on the track, it's going to be wet, we're going to get better at figuring out how to stop wind, windshields from fogging up. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they, they do make kits now that you can yeah. just like add a defroster right onto your windshield, which is yeah. something I'm, something I'm planning on doing to the race car that I'm parked about four feet away from. But um, the uh, yeah, the the defroster and sitting in the rain, those problems uh, go away if you're adding sprinklers to the racetrack. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be great? That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. I do love driving in the rain, man. It's uh, and it's also easier in consumables too. It doesn't tear up the suspension as much. It doesn't tear up the tires. And, yeah. And for the drivers that go, yeah, but you're going to crash more. Well, I think if we did it all the time, I'm not sure yeah. we there'd be any more crashes. My my, uh, my buddy, uh, a friend of ours, he's been on the show several times, and he flies over from England uh, to uh, to work grid life events with us uh, when he can. Richard Simmons, he uh, 
he does track events over in England, and like, I mean, it may he makes it sound like every day it rains in England, <laughs> but I think it maybe every day it does rain in England. Uh, uh, and, and and we had a couple, of, we had some rainy days at uh, at events this year that he was at, and he was like. Oh, this is like this is like every day over in England. <laughs> yeah, it's no big deal. Like, and they still do track things, and they still have a good time. So, it's uh, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Yep, yep. So, um, yeah, that that would uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Get yeah. get rid of the arrow and add more power and make it all wet. <laughs> yeah, but if you think about it, even if you just made the tracks wet, you probably wouldn't need to go through the expense of changing the cars a whole lot. No, it's true. Because it's true. even today, I mean, you watch an IndyCar race or a Formula One race or whatever, uh, prototype cars in the rain, even with all yeah. the aero and everything else they've got, they're still moving around and it's brilliant stuff. Yeah, and, and they're still going very fast. Yeah. Like ridiculously fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my last, uh, I'm looking through my questions here, and my last questions um, involve uh, blocking, defending, and assessing fault in contact and in crashes and stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And like, what series that you've been involved in or watched? Like, what have who who has done it best and who has done it worst? Uh, as far as like uh, crash review and even from a club level to a pro level, uh, do you have any thoughts on? Because I'm starting like a wheel to wheel series. Like, I, I wouldn't mind Ross's opinion on this stuff. <laughs> well. I don't it's know if I a, could. It's kind of a long one. I, I well, assume, I I don't know if I could kind of say you know, hey, it's IndyCar or IMSA or WEC or whatever, uh, because I'd say it has more to do with the official that the official or officials who are making the call at the time, and yeah. I think there have been times where I'll, I'll pick on IMSA right now. Uh, I think there have been times when IMSA has gone through a period of time where, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of questioned, does the official get paid by the number of bad calls or the number of calls he makes? <laughs> okay. Uh, because it's like he's trying to interfere too much. Yeah, and if I you kind of just let the drivers sort it out, they'll sort it out. Um, I think IndyCar has gone through that. I think right now, I think IndyCar is very good. I think IMSA is very good. But they've had some times in the past, not too distant past, where uh, I think just the officials were, I don't know, they were trying to get too involved with it. And, yeah. you know, um, the best officials let drivers know, you can do this, you can do this, but you can't do that. And if you do that, I am going to come down on you hard. And they're very decisive. And when... Uh, when they become less decisive and well, one time it's this and the next time it's that and next time it's yeah. this, then drivers playing, playing in the gray areas there. Yeah. yeah. Well, drivers will always push the boundaries. And right. if you don't know where the boundaries are, they're going to push them and go over them at times. And so the best officials are very, very decisive. Um, you know, I don't care if a, if an official makes a call that goes against me, I just want them to make a call and be consistent with it. And yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So if you're starting a series, that's what you want. You want an official who will make, be decisive and consistent. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, 
do I think blocking should be allowed? No, it's, you know, the rule is you make one move, that's it. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's sort of my rule is it's got to be a logical move in the direction of the race line. You can't just, you know, you know, if somebody wants to pass you on the left, you can't move left and you can't move right when they go right and you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. Um, yeah. I, but I there's a, uh, I'm trying to think of a series that I was in and around just recently. What, what series was it? I can't remember where, uh, Oh, I know I was, I was coaching in Australia and you, the, the drivers could not, you know, if the natural line was to come out of a corner, uh, left-hand corner onto the straightaway on the right-hand side. Right. And the next corner was a right-hander. So eventually, you know, you cross the straightaway to the left-hand side. So you basically yeah. got to cross the straightaway. Um, you could not, you were not allowed to stay to the right and, you know, make one move, but just stay to the right all the way down the, down there. And, and then make it down at the end, yeah. No, you you couldn't even, you weren't even allowed to just stay on that line. You had yeah. to move to the proper racing line. That was the rule. And it's like, well, that is just plain stupid. You know, again, That's a weird rule. You're, you should be allowed one move. And if that move is to move to the inside to block, to defend that thing and make the driver pass on the on the outside, they should be allowed to do that. But only that yeah. one move. In this case, the driver wasn't even allowed one move. They weren't allowed any moves. Nah, they had to stay on the racing line or like some semblance of it, huh? Yep. Interesting. Was that was that a was that closed wheel stuff or open wheel stuff? Open wheel. Well, okay. and I know it was open wheel, but I don't know if it applied. I'm assuming it applied to other series as well. But uh, yeah. that was that, just that's one um, I haven't I haven't heard of. That's, uh, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. Good, good. <laughs> that's just plain silly. That's another one yeah. of those ones where I kind of go. The officials want to be too involved with the outcome of the race. Uh, yeah, that's true. To yeah. me, an official's job is to be involved as little as possible. Yeah, yeah, and that's the stance that I've taken with, with our time trial stuff, uh, time attack stuff, and uh, and that's the stance I would like to take with our wheel to wheel stuff is is try to, try to build a an environment of you know it's got to feel correct, um, and not like not manipulated. Um, there there will probably be always. There'll probably be somebody eventually who thinks that you know that the winner is chosen, but only because it wasn't them. But um, <laughs> You're right. yeah, the winner can't the winner can't be chosen. Basically, is <laughs> I, I don't know the better way to say it. But uh, um, and uh, my last question, uh, we're into this thing for about about one hour almost, so we almost have a podcast, Ross. Almost the almost. Uh, what are your podcasts like? Forty five minutes. Uh, I aim for forty five. That's what I, I thought. Yeah. I, I, they sometimes go over that. Yeah, I like it when they're longer. You should go over more. Everybody likes a long podcast, but uh, then some people, some people don't like a long podcast. <laughs> I personally, I look at a podcast and if it's over an hour, I go, I'm not going to start because I, I know I'm not going to finish it in this. Yeah. So, uh, and, and personally, for me, I've never looked at the time frame of a podcast and thought that's too long. <laughs> <laughs> so there's probably there's probably a, a horse for every course on that one. Exactly. But, and as long as uh, I'm doing podcasts for myself, <laughs> yeah, might as well uh, make it for yourself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, the uh, uh, in in uh, in the automotive world in the last few years, we've seen um, you know 80s, 90s cars, 89, 80s, 90s like stuff like on Bring a Trailer, like the the cars that that were hot with the people who. 
who have a career now and have a little bit of expendable money, when those car, the cars that were cool when they were like five and ten years old, those are the cool cars. Uh, and like that, that's like eighties, nineties stuff now. Uh, car shows and bring a trailer and all the cool stuff. But um, and like styles and trends from them are, from that era are coming back. Like I'm putting like wheel fans on my uh, on my wheel to wheel car that I'm building right now. But uh, um, what are your favorite uh, race cars from that era? From like the eighties, nineties stuff you drove or stuff you watched. Um, uh, what were you into back then? What like what stirred your soul? The next car I drove. <laughs> yeah. Well, besides that. <laughs> well, and to be fair, you know, I, like, obviously I'm a car guy. I've, that's all I've ever done and been around my entire life. But I'm not a guy that gets like, ooh, you know, that car did this and that. Like, I, I don't get, right. to me, they're tools, right? Um, right. The best tool that I ever drove was a 1993 Lola Cosworth Ford IndyCar. Like, right. You know, in terms of, it, it was a car that, when when I wasn't driving it and I saw somebody else driving it, I just I was envious, I was jealous, I was just okay. I'd be watching and going, oh, I want to drive that so bad, like the way it would squirt out of a corner with nine hundred horsepower, the amount of grip so it had, good. you know, yeah. just you turn into a corner and you know they would pull four and a half to five G's for a corner and you're just like, oh. you know, like it just. It, so it, good. The, the only downside was it just beat the crap out of your body. Like you hurt so bad from driving it. But really, they, yeah. you know, there is nothing like that, I guess. Um, yeah, just, I can imagine. You know, and that was, I don't want to, again, don't want to sound like the, you know, the good old days. But, you know, at that time, that was the, you know, that was the Michael Andretti, Al Enzo Jr. Mario was still, that was his last season. You know, Nigel Mansell had come over from Indi from Formula One. You know, Rick Mir is the greatest oval racer of all time. Bobby Ray Hall, you know, Danny Sullivan was still there. Uh, Paul yeah. Tracy was com uh, coming up. Uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, you know, it was just like... Never heard of him. Yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was you know, you did something well and you kind of went, you know, I... I did something today, you know? Yeah, even just racing with those guys, that's ridiculous, man. That yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah. I, I – I, so, so, so there was never like uh, – because now, nowadays everybody's all like, man, that Porsche 930, you know, like, oh, man, that uh, that Jaguar X, XJ220. Like, oh, man, that's the car. Like there was never a car that the shape of it or – you know, and you never drove it or whatever, but there was never a car that you lusted for like that. Well, all those GTP Group C cars in the oh, they're the best <laughs> late eighties, early nineties. Um, oh, the best! Yeah, I got to drive one. I got to drive a nineteen ninety two uh, Nissan Group C car. It was a car that, for many years, up until fairly recently, still still had the lap yeah. record at Le Mans. Mark yeah. Blundell and 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 uh, Mark Blundell uh, Brundle drove that car at Le Mans. I drove yeah. it at Sebring in a historic race, and uh, I went out to qualify in this thing. Sorry for making this long story, but it's just it's interesting. No, you so, can make this story two hours long. I don't give uh, any it, craps. This I go out to qualify at a historic. I know race. this car. I know what it looks like, and it's just the coolest. It's just like it's you know like it's just. Yeah, got arrow and downforce and horsepower like oozing out of this thing. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. When I drove it, it probably only had the 1,200 horsepower chip in it, not the 1,500 horsepower chip. No big deal. No and big deal. so I go out to qualify at Sebring. I go out to, I come around first lap, just warming the car up, come by the start finish line. I'm standing on it. I'm going for a quick lap. I get around most of the circuit. I get back around past turn 13 through coming through Bishop's Bend. Up ahead of me is a small little two liter sports racing car doing 70 miles an hour slower than me. And he's right <laughs> smack in the middle of the track. And I'm driving this guy's car. That's it's worth a few bucks. And I'm there to have a little fun with this car. So right. it's my first lap. I think, okay, throw this lap away. I brake, go down two gears, drive around him, come through, finish the rest of the lap. And on that next lap, a turbo hose popped off and I limped the car back around. So my only lap was that one where I had to brake and slow down. Right. Well, that lap, uh, this was the historic race that was run a week before the 12-hour race at Sebring. And that was okay. when the factory Audi P1 cars were racing at, at Sebring. Right. <laughs> that qualifying lap I did at partway through was four seconds faster than the factory Audis qualified for the 12-hour <laughs> race the next next weekend. No way. So it was just like stupidly fast. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So oh, my gosh. That was a... Uh, and was you a got hoop. held up behind some dude in a two-liter car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a story I've heard a lot of times in like the Time Attack and HPDE world, but like, I believe you on this one. <laughs> Yeah, so it yeah, was. Yeah, that's uh, that's a wild car. Yeah, so it was a wild car, and and uh, man, yeah, it would have been four nice. seconds faster than the current cars. At yeah, the time. oh, that's wild, man. And that is, I'm pretty sure you know if I'd been able to turn a full lap, I uh, you know about it would have five been or six or eight, of, yeah. yeah, probably eight at least. So that's. And, <laughs> You know, I can't say that I was trying to get every last ounce out of the thing even, you know, like it was just that's awesome. there for a historic race. So, uh, that's but awesome. I will tell you that yeah. sitting there on the grid and, you know, it, we were on pole, but I'm sitting there and there are all these, you know, the, the, uh, electromotive Nissan GTP cars, the, oh, yeah. the, yeah. The Gurney American Eagle, uh, Toyota GTP cars, um, Group C cars from Europe, uh, the Jaguar uh, GTP and Group C cars, um, you know, and then going back a little ways to some of like the March IMSA prototype cars and all of those. And there must have been like 30 of these things on this grid oh, yeah. for this historic race. And it's just like, Jeez. wow, this is like, I just stepped back pretty in time. Pretty good grid, man. Yeah, That's yeah. Pretty good grid. Yeah, like a pick, pick and choose of like a who's who of the cool race car world. It was, it was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. What, what's your, what's your favorite stuff to watch nowadays uh, in in racing? Uh, do you, do you have anything that you watch, or is this like a, just a job? And Ross wants to play golf now. Uh, golf? What's that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's this thing with a ball and a stick yeah, and like no. uh, swearing and beer. I don't no, know. I, you only use one ball. Yeah, yeah, you can eat. It's true. You're only using 50% of them, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think IndyCar racing is absolutely brilliant again right now. The Yeah, I think it's pretty cool right now, too. I, I just started getting back into it. The cars look good again. The competition is really close. The driving, I mean, Scott Dixon is one of the best drivers anywhere in the world of all time. Uh, yeah. Alexander, Alexander Rossi, what he's doing with an IndyCar these days is just mind-boggling. His yep. confidence level and what he's doing, you know, and then, you, you know, 
sprinkling a new garden and and uh, Pagano and Will Power and you know I mean it's just the depth of the field you know you kind of go okay it's going to be a few of these guys but uh, you know Hinchcliffe can win one you know man I'd yeah. love to see Wiccans back in a car and you know it's just like it is so good right now and the depth and the quality is so good um, yep. I, I think IndyCar racing right now if you're not watching it you're missing out on something and i think it'll be another one of those like all racing series does they'll you know i think it's nearing its peak and will be there for a few years but probably in a few years somebody will screw it up and let their ego get in the way and it'll ruin the series and it'll start to go down again and we'll go through a period of a 10 years going remember when like 2018 2019 2020 man those are brilliant years don't miss it yeah yeah, so now's the time to watch that. Oh, and, and yeah. of course I love IMSA because that's kind of where I spend a lot of time, but mostly because I yeah. get to watch Colin Brown race there. And Yeah, he's doing pretty well. Every time I see him watch, or every time I ever see him race, he's doing fine. <laughs> he, he, he is absolutely brilliant and only gets better. And the reason yeah. he gets better, he keeps wanting to get better. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was because he uh, he subscribes to Speed Secrets uh, <laughs> no. weekly newsletter on Tuesdays. <laughs> he well, he does, but he also writes for it. See, even yeah, better. he does, he does, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, here's a guy that is at the top of his game, and every single race we go to, he's like, "What do I do better? How can I do yeah. that better?" Like he is hungry to get better, no matter That's what. Awesome. And I think That's you know, awesome. Scott Dixon is a guy who's still trying to get better. So, yeah. And I I think that that probably goes for anybody who's really at the peak and stays there. It's uh you're never going to know everything with this. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh well, uh we're into this thing for like an hour 10. Uh, I think we did a show. We did like one and a half speed secrets podcast. Oh, almost. Uh, yeah, but... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh where can uh, where can people find out more about Ross Bentley and all the things that you do and the seminars and stuff like that, the online and in person and stuff? Uh speedsecrets.com. Just yeah, that, everything there. Yeah, everything's there and of course I I I have fun with social media. Um uh, you know, I try to share what I what I know and like on social media, but uh, you can find me. It's not difficult to find, but yeah. uh, speedseekers.com, everything's there. And uh, I still get a big, big kick out of uh, doing webinars and and going to the tracks and doing talks and everything I get yeah. to do is just a, a pretty lucky guy still. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to hopefully seeing you in February down in Indiana. Um, we're, yeah. we're hoping to, uh, to connect in person and see uh, – and hang out with uh, a little bit of a real real live webinar. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's uh, Indy March 23, 24. Uh, Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, and then I'm going to, because the runoffs, the SEC runoffs are at VIR this year, I'm going to do some coaching at VIR this year. I'm going there. Cool. March 7th, I'm doing something with Formula Experiences. Me and Peter Krauss are working together. So Peter and I really enjoy working together. So we're going to do a, a group of drivers that day. So uh, yeah. I'm going to do some more yep. coaching at VIR this year. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, Ross, uh, always giving back to the hobby and to uh, the the club and the pro drivers, and we we appreciate you hopping on the show tonight. So uh, check them out, and uh, we'll uh, talk soon, Ross. I appreciate you being on, man. Thanks, Adam. Really appreciate it. It's always fun. Yeah, man. See you.
Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at Gridlight to say hello. Hello.